Welcome to Simplify. I'm Caitlin Schiller. And I'm Ben Schumann Solar. We're back. We're back. After the longest hiatus ever. We've had long hiatuses in Simplify history. We've been gone for months at a time, but never more than a year. No, never that long. And it's because we've been working on all this really cool stuff that you can find in various places, but mostly in the Blinkist app, namely Shortcasts. That's right. We launched Shortcasts last year in October, in October 2020, which feels like a million years ago. Truly does. Yeah. And you you came up with a new word. <laughs> yes. You helped develop this new format, which has been taking the podcast industry by storm, I would say. Indeed. But anyway, I guess we should explain what Shortcasts are, really. Yeah. If you're not a subscriber... To Blinkist, which why aren't you? But if you haven't heard of Shortcast yet, if you don't subscribe to Blinkist, here's the deal. It is a brand new kind of audio that we made at Blinkist. It is a shortened version of a podcast episode crafted around that episode's key ideas. But what's really special about it, it's not just like a condensation of a podcast episode. It doesn't feel rushed. It doesn't feel like it's packed down into plywood bits. We actually make these with with the shortcast hosts. So people like Malcolm Gladwell, Lori Santos, we work with them to take out probably the most shimmering, unique, cool key ideas from each episode. The host will do a new introduction, give you some context and some interesting information around that idea, why it mattered to them, what you'll hear, and then get you out of there in about, I don't know, 10 to 12 minutes with a really cool lesson. That's right. I mean, at Blinkist, we're all about trying to find ways where people can sort of fit these moments into their lives, just like this podcast, just like what we're doing now, you know, fit kind of cool ways to learn something, confront yourself with a new idea, dive a little bit deeper into something you're curious about, but in a way that fits your life. And that's why that's why we want to talk about it. I think it's something people should really try out. Yeah. Okay. So it's been a long intro. Let's just get into the interview. Yeah, let's do it. Absolutely. We are super lucky to be working, but we know that for a lot of people, What's been going on the last year, I'm referring to, of course, the global pandemic, made navigating jobs and careers way more challenging than before, which is why I think that this is really the right time to share this episode. Right. You actually recorded this a while ago, right? The interview. I did. I, it might even be over over a year ago at this point. Um, it's with Farai Chidea. I talked with her about her book, The Episodic Career, How to Thrive at Work in the Age of Disruption. Okay, so tell me more. Tell me about the interview and um, yeah, say more about this book, The Episodic Career. Gladly. So Farai Chidea is a novelist. She's a multimedia journalist. She's a radio host. And in this book, she offers this really practical guide for navigating today's super volatile job market. I find her idea of careers being episodic. So Definitely not the traditional stay in one job for 40 years, climb the ladder, retire, and, you know, move to Florida. Super interesting and really useful. When you know that a certain part of your career will come to an end because that's an episode, then it isn't the end of the world. It's actually pretty normal and it will eventually be okay. So that makes it somehow, because of this different mindset, much easier to get back on your feet, which is something that I think people might really need right now. So should we just go right into the interview? Yeah, let's do it. All right. And for any new listeners out there, after the interview, we're going to recap it a bit, add some context. And mostly the coolest part is the bookend. We're going to make a little book list. So if you're into this topic, you can keep diving deeper into it. Yeah. So keep on listening after the interview and get some good reading material. Okay. Let's roll the tape. Boom. Hi, Farai. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Caitlin. Before we get started, could you introduce yourself the way that you like to be introduced? I know that you've worn many hats and have had a lot of episodes in your episodic career. 
Absolutely. So um, I'm the author of six books, including The Episodic Career, but I've also worked in my teens as a waitress. I've worked as a grant maker, which I'm doing now, giving away money to help journalists. I've worked in the tech industry on the comms and strategy side. So I have a lot of different things I can do. Very cool. So episodic career is a term that I had never heard before. Would you mind taking us through what that means? Absolutely. So if you think of the traditional career path as sort of like an escalator where you get on at the bottom in terms of salary and seniority and you go up and you go up and then you get off at the top and you get a gold watch and you go off into the sunset and retire, an episodic career is basically a bunch of small careers within a larger framework of um creativity, self-expression, and of course, the need for money. You know, I'm not saying that work is like a bunch of daisies and it's like a vacation. It's not. It can be brutal. It can be stressful. But it's about saying that I will do things for a certain amount of time, reevaluate, hit a reset button, maybe because you got laid off, maybe because you have a toxic workplace, maybe because you just want new things for yourself. And sometimes that means you need job retraining. Sometimes you just do a pivot. Um, And we can talk about the different ways that these episodes shape up. But it's a to me, a much more fundamentally uh, healthy way to look at a disrupted economy. Yeah, right. I really think that that having a term for the kinds of career trajectories that we see now because of a disrupted economy, this phrase episodic career is super important. And when I first read it, I was like, oh, that's exactly what happens now. Um, I watched my dad get let go because of you know, all kinds of different circumstances, but mostly just because the organization he was working for was big and bloated. He got let go from this job that he'd been working in for for 20 years. He was depressed about it, which makes a lot of sense. But I think that if he had had this framework of careers being episodic, he would have done a lot better. Do you think that people understand that this is another way, the episodic career, it's another way to reframe what work can be and what a career could look like? Or do you think that they haven't quite gotten that yet? I think people are struggling with this. And and the story about your father really reminds me of one of the stories in the book, which is that there's a woman named Carmen Rita Wong, who was a financial analyst on CNBC. And she now is an entrepreneur who runs her own podcast and content production company. But her father was unemployed because of a corporate layoff. And he languished for like three years because he just couldn't deal with the the loss of um, identity. And I think it's really important to realize that for so many of us, whether you are a bus driver, a teacher, a CEO, work is not just a thing you do, it's a thing you are. And every language is different, but in, you know, American English, it's very often that you say, I am a, a bus driver, I am a accountant. You don't say, I work as an accountant. And so that idea that, you know, it's like, I am my job really is a profound expression of selfhood. And I think for many different reasons, women who I interviewed for this book were not necessarily less attached to their jobs, but were more able to pivot Mm. if that job identity went away. I think that a lot of um, the nature of how men were asked to identify with their work and with their accomplishments means that it's also harder when those things disappear. And so I think it may be harder for men, but I think for both men and women, there's a sort of selfhood Mm. and a personhood that gets associated with your work. And so Carmen saw that she and her mother were having to work 
double shifts in order to make up for, you know, the loss of income with her father who couldn't hit the reset button particularly quickly, she basically made a vow that she would do whatever she had to in order to support herself and her family. And she's had many different changes. You know, TV is a weird business. And, you know, she's landed not only on her feet, but like kind of nailed it like Simone Biles, you know, <laughs> uh, the gold medal. And uh -huh. so she's kind of running her own empire now with her own resources. But it's because of that spirit of resilience where, among many other things, she talks about, you know, coming home um, smelling like fryer grease and, you know, no job being beneath her. Mm -hmm. So we have to realize that as much as we want our jobs to be an expression of ourselves, and I talk a lot about that in this book, that sometimes a job is a paycheck mm -hmm. and it's okay. It's okay to do a job for a paycheck, even if you want more for yourself. It's okay to build. It's okay to reboot. And what I found was that the people who had the most equanimity about doing a job for a paycheck, knowing that they wanted to do something more creative or more interesting, were the people who were able to bounce back the most quickly. Yeah. So speaking of that, what are some some key personal qualities or characteristics of people who do well in the current work economy with episodic careers? Um, the people who I interviewed have a sense of self-worth Sometimes hard-won self-worth, um, first of all. So there's a woman who I interviewed who was a sex worker who became a welder. And, you know, not that sex work in and of itself is the problem. She was a drug-addicted sex worker who did not have an empowered relationship to her life. And some people reminded her of how much she was really worth as a person and that she entered a job retraining program. She remembered how good she was at math and science. She remembered how much she loved working with her hands. She remembered how physically strong she was. And so to me, that's a great come from behind story of someone who really had to redefine her self-worth. Um, other people in the book, there's a guy named Justin Dangle, who I talk about, who's an archetype, and we'll get to the archetypes, um, called the Empire Builder, who's a classic serial entrepreneur. He started a healthcare company and an insurance company, but he's also, you know, had bruising, like a, his one of his favorite companies that he started when he was younger, failed and had to deal with that. So there's a sense of self-worth, curiosity, resilience, and the ability to explore hmm. uncertain pathways. You know, it's like no one knows what's going to happen. You just have to try your best. And and these are all people, whether it's the former addict who becomes a welder or the serial entrepreneur who have to be willing to fail, willing to look themselves in the mirror, and willing to move on. Hmm. Mm -hmm. That's that thing that I think they refer to as a growth mindset. Mm -hmm. um, you talk a lot about in your book how a good understanding of the factors influencing the job market is one way to keep your career robust and thriving. So if something does take an unexpected turn, you're ready. Yep. So what kinds of economic markers should we be keeping an eye on to to monitor prospects, current and future? I think the number one thing is to read and talk to people. Mm -hmm. So, for example, when I talked about front-end web developers, you know, I learned HTML in 1995 because I wanted to start a personal blog, which I did. A friend designed it, and then I did mm -hmm. the coding to keep producing the content. And now, you know, if you want to learn HTML, great, but you totally don't need to know it. You can use all sorts of interfaces and, and platforms to do the same work that you used to literally code by hand. And so a lot of people who didn't 
really see how much these different platforms were changing that business, were front-end web developers. And, you know, let's just say that they charged um, $10 an hour. And then all of a sudden they could only charge $7 an hour. And then they could charge five. And then it was one. And you can see how that goes. Yeah. So if you start seeing the rate of money that you earn for doing the same thing dropping, mm -hmm. it's usually a sign that it's time to move on. And so there's all sorts of industries where something is lucrative for a while, and then, you know, it becomes automated or other things happen. And if you then begin to start losing income, you should keep a sharp eye on that. It's also worth just reading industry trades, if you're able to do that, and also reading the general news about the economy. So a lot of people were working in industries like construction, like a, a friend's brother was doing high-end carpentry, like luxury home carpentry mm -hmm. in Hawaii. And then when the Great Recession hit, you know, building your dream house, your second home, well, there wasn't a lot of market for high-end carpentry of the kind he did. Right. And so sometimes there's a slow diminishment of your income, but sometimes there's a cliff where, you know, you've been making bank and all of a sudden the economy shifts and there's a fall off. So you can't always predict these things, but to the extent you can keep an eye on them, if you see indicators moving away from you being able to earn a living at what you're doing, you have to pay attention to that. And it may be a time to retrain or to move into a different field. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Speaking of retraining, another very large section of your book deals with lifelong learning. And you uncovered that employers are far less likely now than ever before to help people invest in those evergreen skills that they might need. So then what do you do if you're working a 40-hour work week? Then how do people fit in lifelong learning? Yeah, you have to you have to take the reins yourself, even if it's hard. And sometimes it's a chance of opportunity. Like you go to work at an employer who is paying educational benefits, and then you get your degree while you're working full-time because it's paid for. But most of the time it's like, oh wow, I really better get another degree because um, I can see the writing on the wall for my current job. And so sometimes there's a period of stress and pain in that, you know, you have a lot of different obligations, but you decide to add on education or you decide to add on vocational training. But I also have really done what I call the school of life, <laughs> where a lot of times, like right now, for example, for the first time ever, I'm co-producing a documentary, which you know wow. I, I can't talk about right now, but I was brought on by some experienced producers who wanted some expertise that I had in the area. And I took the job partly because it pays, but mainly because I was like, wow, I'll get a producer credit and that'll allow me to do new things. And so, of course, it's more work, more time out of my day. I'm certainly being compensated. But the thing that really excited me the most was having a new credential that I've never had in my life. Yeah. So I often choose my side hustles, which I had to ask my job permission for. I have a full-time job and I asked permission and luckily they granted it. But sometimes I will do side hustles as a way of you know, moving myself into a new lane, mm. getting new experience. Mm -hmm. Which is really smart. I'm excited about hearing about this documentary. I'll keep my eye out in the future. Yeah, um, yeah. So it sounds like that having this uh, this opportunity to to learn new things and to add a credential and to, to be able to pivot in, in another direction is really important to you. Um, but that's not that important to some people, which brings me to another section of the episodic career that I thought was really, really fascinating. I never had seen anything like the the archetypes that you set out before. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about the work-life matrix and these archetypes that you designed based on your study? 
Yeah, I mean, it was really exciting. I mean, to me, this was also a really generative process where I had been interviewing people because I've been a reporter for the past 30 years on and off, mainly on, um, probably 24 of the past 30 years. And I started noticing patterns among people who I would interview about work and jobs. Mm. And then I did a bunch of survey research and sort of codified these archetypes. So there's four basic questions. One is, when it comes to work, are you cautious or a risk taker in what you choose to do? Two, do you choose high social impact work or are you working for money? Three, are you an innovator who likes coming up with new ideas or an executor who likes delivering the payload? Um, and four, are you a solo decision maker? Regardless of how many people are working on a project, do you like to be the one who's like, this is my way, let's execute it? Or are you a team decision maker? Let's brainstorm, let's figure things out together. And so, for example, I'm an RHIT, which is a risk-taking, high social impact innovator who likes making team decisions. Me too. So, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. And, you know, I like it because, I mean, you know, there's no best or worst archetype. It's what I really was saying is that know yourself, be true to yourself. So if you are someone who's a risk taker, you're not going to be happy doing, you know, what I call the escalator model of job where you get on at the bottom and you take the escalator up. Even if you're lucky enough to find one of the few jobs left that's an escalator job that you can stay in for 40 years, you're not going to be happy if you're someone like us. Likewise, you're not going to be happy kind of pretending to be a risk taker if you're a cautious person. Mm. There's nothing better or worse. It's just that very often we have to get in touch with who we are at our core. And so because of that, there's 16 different archetypes. And um, I talked about the empire builder who, you know, is the person who's the serial entrepreneur. And, and you know, if you look the book up or look up the materials, you'll see all of the different archetypes. But I think you know, I'll give you an example of innovator versus executor. So um, I was like, who wants to be the executor who just does what what they're told, essentially? Because I'm, you know, I don't really think that way. Mm. But um, there was a woman, I was at a health spa, you know, trying to get a little exercise in. And this woman, I was like, oh, I have to file my business taxes. I filed an extension. I hate doing them. She's like, I'm a bookkeeper. I love this stuff. Do you want me to help you? And I was like, I was like, whoa, okay. I think I found my perfect executor. You know, she's just like, she's like, put me in the spreadsheets, you know? And yeah. I'm like, you know, I mean, everyone has their happy place, right? Uh-huh. Hey, it's me with just a quick break from my talk with Fry. Having to start again or to pivot from your current job path can feel really overwhelming. And you might think, all right, so how do I even start figuring out what's right for me? And that actually is something that Blinkist can really help with. Blinkist gives you a sneak peek into a whole world of great nonfiction books that can offer you inspiration for the next chapter of your career or your life in general. By transforming these books into powerful little capsules of text or audio, Blinkist helps you digest the key ideas in just about 15 minutes. And now there are also shortcasts. Shortcasts are 10 to 15 minute edits of the most important ideas from longer podcast episodes. They're super cool because you can learn really fascinating, fresh stuff in just minutes and get up to speed on those great shows that everybody's listening to fast. But as with most things, friends, it's better if you just try it out for yourself. So go to Blinkist.com slash simplify, click try Blinkist in the top right hand corner, and you can try it for 14 days for free by entering the code reboot. That's Blinkist.com slash simplify. Use the code reboot and you'll get 14 days free. All right. Hope you love it. That's it. Back to my chat with Farai. So 
Why is it so important to know what your archetype is? Why is this one of the tools that you offer in your book? So I think that one of the reasons it's important to know yourself, whether it's through this work-life matrix archetype system or whether it's some other way, is that you will always feel like a fish out of water if you're not being true to yourself. I mean, all of us can't be true to ourselves all the time. It's the nature of the human experience. You know, life is stressful. Sometimes we have to do things in ways that we don't love to do them. But the more that you align yourself with your inner compass and your values and your workflow, the better work you can do. In general, I would say that people who are cautious careerists are more likely to be people who prefer longer lengths at companies or longer lengths in professions. Um, People who are risk takers can also stay at one company for years or decades, but often reinvent themselves within the company. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't imply that you have to switch jobs. I mean, you know, your your job will change, but you don't have to switch companies. But there's a sense of self-reinvention within the place that you are. Or you have a job like being uh, a podcast or radio host where you get to reinvent yourself kind of every day. Um, And so I think that it's, it's really, you know, I know when I'm feeling off. I know when I'm at a place in my career trajectory where I feel like I've gotten pushed in a direction I don't want to go. And sometimes it's the the whole being promoted into the job you don't want. Yeah. And I can imagine that understanding what your archetype is and, and what kind of work really works for you and fills you up would be the perfect thing to understand if you were a person who was at a reset point. Oh, absolutely. Because the last thing you want to do if you're having to do a reset is to then go and have to reset again too quickly because that's exhausting. Mm. The resets should not be constant or else they're not really resets. They're just struggle. Mm. And so you have to figure out what your own pace is. Some people are almost exclusively decision-making based on, is this optimizing my career? Some people are almost exclusively optimizing for family. And many people optimize as best they can for both. So also, it's it's good to know what you're optimizing for. Are you optimizing for high earnings? Are you optimizing for career stability? Are you optimizing for fame? It's okay to do any of those, as long as you know what you're doing, and you're okay with failing at it. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Actually, that reminds me, I, I was watching a talk of yours the other day. And you talked about how Americans who who optimize towards money are happier than those who yes. work toward a mission. And I, I yep. just felt the, the knife sink into my heart and twist. And I knew that that feeling. I just I got it. Yep. Um, can yep. you talk a little bit about why that might be true? Yes, this surprised me so much. This came out of the survey research that I did. And at first I was like, is this an error? And then I started like going back through my interviews and just thinking about it. And the reality is that it's about when do you know when you've reached your goal? Mm -hmm. So if your goal is to create a world where there's no gender inequality, you will not live to see that goal you know, no. nor will people in the next generation. I mean, you can get better and better, and I think we are, but like if you have a kind of complex theoretical or social goal like that, there is no end to it. Whereas if you're like, I want to earn a hundred thousand a year or a million a year, 
which is a perfectly fine way to quantify your success if you choose to, you're pretty clear on whether or not you've hit that benchmark. And so optimizing for money in international travel is, you you know, you look at your passport, you look at your bank account, Mm -hmm. and you figure out whether you've hit your metric. Whereas if you're like, I'm optimizing for world peace, you know, you're going to wake up a lot of mornings pretty frustrated. Yeah. Right, exactly. And it makes perfect sense once you unpack it. But I can see why you might have mm-hmm. thought that was an error in the data at first. Absolutely. Yeah. And so what I think it means is that people who are mission driven in these ways, other than financially, have to be we have to be kind to ourselves and just say, I'm seeking goals that are probably outside of my control in the end. Mm. And I'm going to do the best towards reaching these, but I'm not the sole decider. I'm not the driver. I'm just doing my best in a complex system. And then once you have a little more compassion for that, it becomes easier. Yeah. Um, another another section of the book that I thought was was really well well put and important for people to understand is that job searching is A, really, really tough, and B, it doesn't mm-hmm. work the way we think it does. But I was really surprised to read that online job search doesn't really work because if I were to get laid off today, that's probably where I'd start. What should people be doing instead? Yeah, um, online job search doesn't work alone for most people. Now, there are some people for whom it does. Like if you're a certain type of computer programmer or search engine optimization person who has certain very clear credentials and it's a hot field, you can use search pretty well. Mm -hmm. But for most people, Job definitions tend to be more flexible, and also the job search is fundamentally more networked-based. And so a lot of people are like, oh, I'll network. I'll go hang out at these places with my friends. It's like, that's not networking. Networking is getting outside of your comfort zone. And one of the things that I found is that there's a lot of research on what are called weak ties. You know, the weak ties who tend to be people who are not in your inner circle and maybe not even in your middle circle, but who are at the outer edges of your circle because they will know about opportunities that you won't have already thought about. And they may also not know you well enough to predict what you're going to say. And they'll ask you questions like, oh, do you really want this or do you want that? And so these weak ties actually produce much better results than strong ties, because very often people with strong ties to each other, they have so much overlap that they're not telling you a lot that's new. So that's something that's important. Push yourself to the outer edges of your networking circle and just start hitting up a bunch of people and don't get mad when people don't get back to you. You know, that's a mistake a lot of people make like, oh, this person didn't get back to me. I feel disrespected. It's like, well, that person may have had a death in the family yeah. or maybe they're on vacation or or maybe they just don't want to talk to you. So what? Keep moving. Yeah. Yeah. Networking. It's it's such a it's a necessary evil, I think, or at least a lot of people feel that way. I tend to if you think about networking in the in the sense that you go to a conference and hand out your business card and shake hands with people. It just feels terrible. You can also take control of it, though. You can be someone, I mean, I knew a couple of different people who would, for example, host coffee dates or happy hours for a group of people. You can start your own networking circle and make it something where you can constantly pull in new people. Now, that's work. It's not for everyone, but you also don't have to be passive. You can be someone or you can get together a group of three or four co-hosts who helps put together something that sustains itself and brings you a lot of joy. Hmm. I just want to ask you the thing that I like to ask to wrap up interviews in general, because I feel like we've covered a lot of a lot of good ground here, um, which is if there were 
one thing that you'd really like people to take away from from what we've talked about concerning how to organize a modern career because of the vicissitudes of the economy and just the way that the pace at which life moves. What is that thing that you really want them to know? I think I want people to know it will be okay even if it's not okay. And what I mean by that is very often when systems fail, we feel like failures. So we're in a toxic workplace or we're in a startup that fails or we're in a big company that's having layoffs. And because of that, we feel that we've failed. Or maybe we have failed. You know, there have been jobs that I've worked at where I just wasn't suited to it or things were going on in my life where I didn't perform the way I wanted to. But it'll be okay. The main thing is to have the ability to reboot. Everyone fails. But the question is, what do you do with that failure? Everything is not a straight line. You know, there's many times where you zigzag, your salary may go up and down, your level of job satisfaction may even go up and down. But to to really fundamentally know that you are not your job, but that you should have work that makes you feel fulfilled and also feel compensated well enough to live the kind of life you want to live, that is not unrealistic. It's hard, but it's not unrealistic and you can do it. That was beautiful. I'll probably end on that note. But I, I also like to ask if you've been reading anything lately that you've really loved and if you could make a recommendation. You know, it's funny. I read a lot of science fiction. Um, nice. And I'm going to give podcast recommendations for people who like science fiction, which I know is a weird thing to give. That's great. I love the nichiness of it. Yeah. So I'm a science fiction um, aficionado. And part of the reason that this relates to the future of work is, first of all, I actually learned some tangible things about the future of work by looking at the hard science in science fiction, like asteroid mining, genomics, et cetera. Mm. But also, so much of science fiction is about rebooting and struggling to survive and succeeding. So the astronaut gets on the ship and they land on the planet. Super boring story. The astronaut gets on the ship and the booster rocket blows up and they have to patch the ship and then they land and they need more oxygen and they learn how to, you know, I mean, like, it's about being able to get through hard things. It's about dealing with the death of ecosystems. It's about dealing with different cultures. And so I learn a lot of kind of resiliency lessons from science fiction. So some of my favorite podcasts are Clark's World, um, Escape Pod, and something called Starship Sofa. And so if you don't like science fiction, probably not the thing for you. But I think that fiction is a great place to learn about resiliency. And whether it's very realistic fiction or whether it's science fiction, speculative fiction, anything that fills your soul with stories of hope and resiliency can actually be a great thing for much more practical, you know, job search related questions. Very cool. I think that has to be the most creative recommendation I've ever had. (laughs) Thanks. Thank you. All right, Farai, thank you so much for taking the time today. It was such a pleasure to talk with you. Caitlin, I loved it. Thanks so much. Welcome to the bookend. Where we end with books. Let's talk about the interview a little bit first. Yeah, I, I want to talk about this idea of the archetype, Farai's concept of the work archetype. And how knowing your archetype can help you understand what kind of work you should look out for, or or also what you can pay attention to in your work, because otherwise you always feel a little bit uncomfortable. You won't feel like your real self. You'll feel like an imposter. 
Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, let's do it. Actually, you took the test, right? What What's your archetype? Do you know? I took the test, R-H-I-T. Like me and Farai. Yeah. So I pulled it up right here on my handy dandy Kindle, and um, I'm going to tell you what it is. So the R-H-I-T is the promoter. R-H-I-T wants to promote, not for the sake of self, but rather for bigger ideas, often of justice. He or she seeks to take calculated risks and innovate new ways of working in a high social impact field such as education or politics working closely with the team and often leveraging media or face-to-face or social networking to rally people to the cause about which he or she cares. Jobs and careers often held by RHIT survey respondents are writer, artist, and educator. How's that? Does that sound like you? Yeah, I'm an artistic educator. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's what a podcaster is, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I also think, you know, I'm in a leadership position in Blinkist, as they say. Yeah. And I heard a definition of leadership that was about organizing people toward a positive outcome. Mm. So you can, like, a leadership doesn't mean being a manager, like, doesn't mean having a team or something. You can lead a project because it's about organizing toward a positive outcome. Yeah. And I, what you read from the book there, I think also connects to that, right? It's about pulling, motivating, pushing toward a place, toward a goal. And I I definitely see that in my work. That's very cool. Yeah, I think so too. And I I feel like it fits for me as well. I, before I found my way to Blinkist, I worked, um, I worked in schools. I worked in schools in Spain. I worked at a university and in an elementary school. And educating has always been something I've done. Before that, I even kind of tie in the marketing and copywriting work that I did as educating because you're, you're teaching people about a product or about a service, right? Um, and we're still kind of finding ways to educate here at Blinkist. So it's kind of neat. Yeah. So, I mean, the work archetype, you know, we talked a little bit about our experience, but who are we anyway? Right. You know, I think the interesting thing for people out there and like you talk about in the interview is how that archetype can help. So what do you think is a way, you know, how does self-awareness help people at work? Yeah, I mean, it helps them with everything, right? It helps them know when is the best time for them to get their work done. It helps them feel like they're connected to their work because they understand what their goals are and what they're optimizing for. And they also, I think, understanding what your work archetype is allows you to, I guess, diagnose problems when you don't feel like you're in the right job. You can go, oh, well, maybe this isn't fulfilling me because this has no implications for any kind of social impact at all. And maybe I need to start looking at jobs that will do that for me because that's how I can feel fulfilled in my career. Yeah. I think for me, that was the main takeaway of the interview. I think that's really, that's great. Yeah. Um, Should we do the books? I want to hear, I want to hear the books. (laughs) Yeah, let's do the books. Okay. So my pick is How to Find Fulfilling Work by Roman Krisnarek, and it's part of the School of Life's Practical Philosophy series, edited by Alain de Botton, whom I like a lot. Farai recommends this book because she says that it takes you on a journey of understanding what makes work great for you. Whether that's financial goals, creative goals, changing the world, whatever it is, you can figure out what would make a job fulfilling for you with the help of this book, and it's on Blinkist. Cool. I, I brought one book. This is the book my mom gave me in college. Mm. And it's, I guess, maybe she was given it also. You know, it's sort of that kind of classic. And the book is called What Color Is Your Parachute? Your Guide to oh. a Lifetime of Meaningful Work and Career Success yeah. by Richard Bowles. And yeah, this book is like, it's been out since the 70s. It's one of the top selling nonfiction books of all time. Like every year they put out a new version of it. So you see it on a lot of bookshelves in different colors. And yeah, there's sort of exercises in there for what you could look for and what kind of career can fit for you. And I like the idea. I just like the title even. What color is your parachute? You know, how do you fall? (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. I also think it's really cool that you have these traditions in your family that you like pass books to each other. I know that you're super attached to your strunk and white. Didn't somebody give that to you and your family too? Oh yeah. My mom gave me strunk. No, an English teacher, a high school teacher gave me strunk and white. Oh, okay. Do people know what strunk and white is? The elements of style. Yeah. It's a book about writing. Right. Exactly. I have my dad's super, super old copy up on my bookshelf right now. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, what about you? Do you have another book? You have a third book? Uh, Sure. Um, I'm actually going to recommend a book called The Multi-Hyphen Life, Work Less, Create More, and Design a Career That Works for You. And it is by Emma Gannon. Uh, who's Emma Gannon, Ben? Do you know? She is the host of a podcast called Control-Alt-Delete. Yes, which is significant because uh, we also have her show, Control-Alt-Delete, which interviews really smart people about finding your way in work and life and toward your passions, uh, which is what the book is about, basically. Um, we have it in the Blinkist app as a shortcast. That's right. And actually, we have a coupon code so people can try Blinkist and go check it out. If you use the code REBOOT, if you go to Blinkist.com slash Simplify, you can find a way to get to the voucher code and you can get 14 days free of Blinkist with that. So use the code reboot, R-E-B-O-O-T. And then, yeah, you can go check out some books on this topic on career development and also go check out the Control-Alt-Delete shortcast. Some really cool interviews there about how people work and how she uses work to connect people's lives, really, and talk about life. Indeed. All right. So let's get out of here. Simplify was produced by me, Caitlin Schiller, Ines Blasius, Ben Schumann-Stahler, and Marta Medvisek. That's right. If you like this episode, just share it with somebody. Maybe somebody who's struggling to reboot at the moment. Someone who's tired of juggling side hustles, or maybe somebody who is really passionate about like understanding work and what drives them in their work. And um, if you don't mind, leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts. Tell us what you think of Simplify. That really helps us and will help us as we reboot Simplify season seven Woo. and get it back up the charts. Yes. All right. That's it for today. If you want to tell us what you thought about this interview or recommend a book or just say hi to us, tell us what your work archetype is um, or tell us how much you missed us while we were gone. We are on Twitter. I am at Caitlin Schiller and Ben is at Bisto. And you can email all of us at podcast at Blinkist.com. All right. Until next time. All right. Checking out. Checking out. Checking out.